the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show today. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your questions, Bible questions, church questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. All you have to do is pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app and as always if you are driving in your car the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen you'll be connected directly to our studio producer it's Tuesday we don't have a bunch going on so let me get right to the questions that have been sent in we love your phone calls I always say that you are way more interesting than I am So let's get started. Here is a question. This one is from Tim. He says, Hi, Pastor Ron. Thank you for all you do. You're welcome. And then he says, that was my ad. And then he says, I have a weird question. Hopefully you can help me with. The Gospel of John says that Jesus was in the beginning. Was Jesus in human form during this point? Or was he like God the Father in spirit? Thanks for your help. Tim, that's not a weird question at all. Uh, Jesus was God. I mean, we know that he always existed as God. He never stopped existing as God. But he wasn't in human form until his incarnation. Now, we we understand that life begins with conception. So Jesus' incarnation began when Mary was impregnated um, um, by the Holy Spirit uh, and Jesus then began the process of living his life. So he was only human. He was always the God-man. That was always the plan of God. But he didn't take on human form until he was actually uh, born uh, in this world. So uh, he was with the Father, uh, with the Holy Spirit, and um, um, we can assume in spirit. Now, one other consideration here. Jesus has made or did make a lot of pre-incarnate appearances. Um, Whenever you read in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord, you'll see people worshiping or people um, um, falling down before him. Uh, That was Jesus. Nobody can see God, the, the, the Father. Nobody can see the glory of God without dying. So Jesus revealed him to us. And many, many times Jesus appeared uh, as an angel of the Lord, and or the angel of the Lord, rather. And, uh, and he would temporarily take on the appearance of humanity. So, uh, but he was always with the Father, always the Spirit. Uh, on his incarnation, he became just like us. And obviously, Tim, that was important because if Jesus... Um, um, didn't become a person, a man, 
And if he didn't fulfill his mission, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, the father declared. If he didn't live a perfect sinless life, then he wouldn't have been qualified to be a sacrifice for our sins. And that means we would all be lost in our sins. Thank you, Tim, for the question. Here's an anonymous question. Uh, I like the way this question's framed, and it's directed at me. Why do you hate the 2011 NIV? The only difference I see between this and the 1984 is that it is gender-inclusive. What is wrong with that? Anonymous, there's so much wrong with this. Let me, now, there are other differences, too. The, the uh, translation is uh, the 2011 uh, has uh, other phrases and other words, um, and, and I guess we could parse about the importance of those. But the gender inclusion means that it ceases to be a translation, and it becomes an interpretation. You know, the, there's the message, or there are other paraphrases uh, of the Bible. Uh, at least they're honest and say, well, we're not a translation, but we're a paraphrase. Um, and and uh, the the 2011 NIV doesn't do that. Now, um, um, you know, publishers always want to sell more Bibles, and so they'll come up with new ideas. But the 2011 NIV, um, by by changing the translation, it ceases then to be faithful to the manuscripts that it's translating. And if that's the case, it's really not a Bible at all, and it becomes an interpretation. You know, Bible teachers, people like me, uh, we can say to our, um, uh, our, our, our people when we're teaching, you know, if, uh, uh, if any man is in Christ, we can say, well, if any man or any woman is in Christ. I mean, clearly that's the case. But when a translation does that, and the manuscripts that it's translating don't say that. It ceases to become a translation. And then it, it opens the door for all kinds of other uh, misinterpretations. Uh, it just it simply is not what the manuscripts say. And the one thing we want, Anonymous, from our Bible is it is faithful to the manuscripts. Now, I've said this on this program many, many times, but, but the different translations, and there are many, many good translations, um, um, the King James and the New King James, uh, for example, uh, are translations of the majority texts or the Texas Receptus. And those manuscripts are faithfully translated um, in the New King James and in the King James Version of the Bible. The newer translations, the ESV, the NIV, um, uh, the NASB, and some of the others, they are translating the Alexandrian manuscripts, which are older than the majority texts, uh, and they're also very faithful translations, uh, very faithful to, to, to reporting what the manuscripts actually say. Well, in 2011, because uh, gender inclusion was beginning to be a big deal and they saw an opportunity to, to sell more Bibles, um, they um, they ceased the, the the faithfulness to the manuscripts, and that's the real problem. So I I you're right. Hate is the right word. I hate that translation. Um, fortunately, the 1984 NIV is starting to make a comeback, and uh, and people are able to get it on on apps and stuff on their Bibles. So um, gender inclusion is not faithful translation. So that's really important, Anonymous, that we stay faithful to the text. Otherwise, they become an interpretation, or even as some of the, the, the um, um, paraphrases are, um, sort of a, a dramatization of the Scripture. And uh, one of the things that we don't want to do is we don't want to interpret. Um, uh, we don't want a Bible that's been interpreted. We want a Bible that's faithful to the inspired, inerrant um, manuscripts that God sent to us. So I hope that makes sense to you, but it's it really is that important. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Dewey. Uh, he says, Hi, Pastor. Hearing this news bothers me. I was reading the headline, or this headline, in Forbes.com. The Vatican says transgender Catholics can be baptized 
become godparents, and be witnesses at Catholic weddings under certain circumstances. Now, I'd like to know what those certain circumstances are, Dewey, but uh, um, it doesn't say. And then he continues, I know what the Bible says on this matter. I read the article trying to see what Pope Francis' rationale or reasoning for this decision was based on. The policy change was a response to letters written by a Brazilian bishop about the uh, LGBTQ plus people um, possible participation in baptism and weddings. I really don't fully understand the Catholic Church and its doctrines, but nothing the Pope is saying makes any sense to me. Can you give me some insight on what's going on with this church and what kind of effect this might have? Um, and then he signs off, thank you, Dewey. Dewey, a couple of things. One, you never should be surprised. These are unbelievers. Pope Francis is not a born-again believer. It's just that straightforward. And I always get in trouble and people get angry with me when I say it. But he doesn't care what the Bible says. And he's demonstrated that over and over and over with his rulings. In fact, he doesn't even care that much about that which has been formerly solid Catholic tradition. Uh, he is sort of swept to and fro by every new doctrine or every new move of, of, of social spirit uh, in, in the world. And, and he just doesn't care. The Catholic Church has all kinds of doctrinal issues. Um, you know, they, they're, they're, they're religion. They're not a cult. They're religion. They've got the same Father, the same Jesus, the same Holy Spirit. Uh, and there are saved Catholics, born-again Catholics. But doctrinally speaking, they don't care. And this is a pope who has just decided that, uh, well, we're going to love people, we're going to accept people, and what they're doing is is destroying um, what little remains that is good about the Catholic Church. So so uh, don't have any expectations that unbelievers are not going to cave in on these issues. And this Pope has just caved into the pressure from the LGBTQ um, community. And um, um, it won't be long now before anything and everything goes. And um, we, we're seeing that begin right here. So again, Dewey, um, don't be surprised when unbelievers are swept into this craziness that's going on in the world in these last days. Let me say this. Now, I, I say, don't be surprised, but, but in, in our church here at Calvary Chapel, I say to our own people, people that really are saved, I'm, I tell them all the time, if you're not really committed to the Word of God, if you're not rightly dividing the Word, if you're not in it on a regular basis, and I, by regular I mean uh, daily, nearly daily, there are always things that happen that prevent us from being in the Word, but if you're not in it, you are eventually going to be persuaded by the world that we live in and the spirit of this world. We know that's the enemy, Satan. Uh, you're going to be convinced that, well, it's okay if people want to live this way. It's okay. They can still live this way and get to heaven. You're going to be persuaded because that's the pressure and the ability of the enemy to, um, to, to, to fool us. And and uh, apart from being in the Word on a daily basis, uh, renewing your mind, Paul calls it, uh, apart from that, every single person is going to be swept into finally agreeing that things that God says are wrong are okay. And that's what's happening here in the Catholic Church. Um, it's, it's also happening in many... Uh, non-Catholic churches, professing Christian churches as well. So I hope that makes sense to you, but uh, Dewey, it's very important. Um, unless you hold on to the uh, inerrancy, the infallibility of the Word, unless you're personally convinced that this is God's Word and God doesn't change, um, then you're going to be won over by the Spirit of this world, and that's always a bad thing. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question. This one is anonymous. Hello, Pastor Ron. I know that as born again Christians, we should always be on the side of Israel, especially in regards to what's going on at the moment. 
With that said, should we be praying for any Palestinians at all, such as women and children, or are there no innocent Palestinians? You know, um, Anonymous, I'm glad you asked this question because it's really important that we discern what our position should be. You're right. We should be on the side of Israel. That's um, uh, Jesus is coming back to Israel. You and I, we're going to spend time in Israel during the millennial reign. That's where Jesus is going to establish his kingdom and fulfill all of the promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Um, But with regard to the Palestinians, innocent Palestinian civilians are victims of Hamas. Uh, Hamas is the one who started this war with this horrible October 7th attack. Um, Hamas knew what the response of Israel would be. Um, Hamas is the one that is is um, using the innocent, um, elderly, the women, the children, um, as human shields. Um, they're using them as media propaganda in order to in order to curry the favor of the world. Uh, so they are uh, victims of. Hamas, and their blood, every drop of it, is on the heads of the Palestinians, of Hamas. Not on Israel's heads at all, but on the heads of Hamas. So yes, we ought to be praying for victims everywhere in the world. And one of the things that we understand, these these children especially are going to be raised to hate Jews, to want to kill Jews, and to want to wipe Israel off the face of the map. Um, and so we need to pray. We need to pray that there will be a move of God's Spirit, even among the Palestinians. And in situations or conditions like they find themselves in, people get to such a desperate place that, that often the Spirit of God really begins to move. But yeah, we ought to be praying for Palestinians. But but um, there are no innocent Palestinian adults, um, victims of Hamas's aggression, of course, of their terrorism. Um, but um, especially for children, we ought to be praying for them. And uh, we ought to be praying that uh, maybe the rest of the Arab world, who has plenty of room, would begin to welcome them in. But as long as Hamas is holding them hostage uh, as as human shields, um, they're going to continue to die. And that is a tragedy, an absolute tragedy. But I want to repeat, their blood, the innocent Palestinian blood, is not on Israel at all. Their blood is on the hands and the hearts and the brains of Hamas. And um, so I hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Marcus. He says, First Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 says, A pastor must be married. Uh, why would I be disqualified if I choose to remain single? Marcus, if you're called to be a pastor, God bless you. It is the greatest job in the whole world. Uh, having said that, uh, you're not rightly dividing First uh, Timothy chapter three verse two. Uh, it says uh, a, a pastor in the literal translation, and you need Bible study tools. If you're called to be a pastor, you need Bible study tools. You don't need to be a Greek scholar, but you need the benefit of those who are. And this is literally a one woman man, and it doesn't mean that he cannot be unmarried. The person who wrote this, the Apostle Paul, who certainly was, uh, in addition to being an apostle uh, and an evangelist, he was a pastor. All you have to do is read uh, his letters and, and his heart for the, the, the churches that, that he was instrumental in planning. Uh, certainly he was a pastor, but he was unmarried. He was single. So it doesn't say that if you're single, you can't be a pastor. It just is a general reference to um, you can't have more than one wives. You can't be, in our culture, we would say a serial uh, divorcer. Um, you know, get tired of one wife, and so you divorce her and marry another one. Uh, that You need to be in a faithful, committed relationship with one woman, um, loving her the way Christ loved the church. And if you are single, God bless you. Two quick stories. I don't have anybody on the line. We'd love to have your calls. But uh, one, there's a pastor in San Marcos. Uh, really a good guy. And uh, years ago, 10 years ago, he 
Um, he, he, I was talking to him, he said, no, I'm committed to be single. I'm going to stay single. I know I'm never going to be married. And, you know, we just kind of smiled at him and, and been praying for him. Uh, he's a really good guy. Well, at our last Texas, Oklahoma pastors conference, um, he introduced me to his new wife and she is absolutely gorgeous, loves Jesus with all of her heart. And he was so thrilled, so happy. So, uh, it, it is very helpful for a pastor to be married. I, I don't I don't even have to qualify. I simply could not do what I do without Paula. And um, um, being a married, having a healthy, vibrant marriage, uh, I believe is an essential tool for a pastor. The second story is, you know, we have one unmarried pastor on my staff. Uh, he's our junior high pastor, and he will be the man that as we move into our new building and have some space, uh, he's going to be the one that God has chosen to uh, establish our Bible college. And by the way, it'll be free too. Um, and and um, I've been praying. I, I've known this young man um, since he was born, literally. I mean, he was an infant, and um, uh, he's been with us now for um 25 years, and um, I've been praying for his wife for a very, very, very long time, and um, we just were able to announce his engagement uh, in church this past Friday, and so we're all thrilled, and believe me, the woman that God brought into his life was really worth waiting for. You know, we always pray that he'd find somebody that loved Jesus as much as he did. This girl loves Jesus so much. She just lights up a room when she walks into it. And uh, she is the perfect counterpart. Uh, she has what he needs. He has what she needs. And it's clear that, that God brought them together. So it's really, really neat thing. But um, Marcus, you, you can be single and be a pastor um, so um, pursue it with all of your heart, but keep your eyes and your heart open because God wants to do something. And uh, again, I want to say I, I can't imagine trying to do what I do without Paula. And uh, your wife will eventually be a tool that will help you accomplish the work that God wants you to do. Thank you for the question. Here's a question from Buck. Buck says, what is your biggest test in ministry, and have you ever considered quitting? I asked because I was told every pastor thinks about quitting a lot. You know, Buck, we were just, Paul and I were just at our, our International Pastors Conference, and uh, the joke was said by several of the speakers. Uh, the joke was, well, you know, I, I know we feel like quitting every Sunday or every Monday we feel like quitting. Um, I have to tell you, I, I've never considered quitting, not even for a moment. I knew it wasn't an option for me. It simply wasn't an option. Um, the man who quits because things are hard uh, isn't really serving Jesus. He's serving himself. And the minute we start thinking about, well, this is really hard and nobody appreciates me, uh, it, it, it reveals our heart. And I've known from the beginning, now there's been really, really hard things. But I've known from the very beginning that I had no option to quit. You know, uh, Buck, I, I would go on vacation um, every year and, and it was during the summer. And I uh, figuratively offered God my resignation. This Lord, I want to be in your will. I want to make sure I'm not overstaying my welcome. I want to be sure that I'm still being fruitful. And so here is my resignation. And for all of these years, God has said, ah, keep your resignation. And and um, so uh, I, I just have known that quitting has never been an option. And personally, I don't believe, I'm, I mean, pastors get discouraged, but I don't believe, um, Buck, at all that, that most pastors think about, seriously think about quitting at all. Uh, it is a calling. God hired you. God's the only one that can fire you. And we need to understand that. Regarding my biggest test in ministry, that's almost impossible because every day is a test. And um, these tests uh, are necessary. Um, they help us to become more like Jesus. We share in the fellowship of his sufferings. I think the biggest source of heartbreak 
in ministry, Buck, is um, watching people who are um, seemingly passively settling for way less than God's best. I got to say that really and truly breaks my heart. Um, and um, I, I, it's something I don't understand. I know they're getting ripped off. I think the biggest problem for me is they won't know they're getting ripped off until they get to heaven and Jesus shows them what he had for them. Uh, but uh, that is a, a huge test. Um, so so I guess I, it's as general as they can be, but I don't know about anything specifically uh, other than that. You know, we have people that die, um, that break our hearts. We we watch people go through uh, debilitating illnesses that, that um, take a long time before they go to be with the Lord. Um, and those things are really, really hard, dealing with the pain of um, their family members that are left behind. Those are really difficult things. But I think most of us, we simply accept that as a part of what we do in Christ. It's just part of the job, and we're there to, to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. Buck, thank you for the question. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half hour of our Tuesday show, 340-9585. That's area code 210. Let's go to line one and talk with Cindy. Cindy, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Are you doing well today now that it's warming up? I've been inside, but yes, I'm looking forward to going outside and not freezing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I'm kind of curious about uh, the Psalms, what the time frame of the Psalms would have been. The reason why is that Cora came up in the Calvary Crafters Bible study today, who Lucy does such a great job of researching everything, and it's just a fabulous study. Well, some of the Psalms I've noticed are from the sons of Cora, and that made me wonder, well, how old are some of these song, Psalms? And the reason why is that Korah, wasn't Korah swallowed up when, when he was leading a rebellion against Moses? So I'm kind of wondering, well, is that the same core of sons? Kind of, I, th I think I've got this untangled, or sort of tangled, but I'll let you kind of untangle it for me, and I'll listen on the radio. Thank you, Cindy. Appreciate it. Yeah, that was a bad day for Cora <laughs> and, and his family and those people that joined in his rebellion against Moses. You know, one of the things that we need to look at in situations like that is is this is God's heart toward rebellion against leadership that he's in, initiated. And we think rebellion is an attractive thing in our world. And, and, and from God's perspective, it's just not. Now, back to your question. The sons of Korah, um, from the beginning, they were sort of the worship leaders. And um, the sons of Korah, they're, they're, they're literally the ancestors, not the direct sons of Korah, um, but but those who were uh, from his tribe and followed in that worship ministry. And so they would have been um, in operation from the time of Korah, um, literally time with Moses, all the way through um, the writing of the Psalms, all the way through Israel's history, um, the Korah, the, the Kohathites, uh, the sons of Korah, uh, there were were psalms written by them, um, so so they just a tradition passed on through the generations. So Cindy, it wasn't going all the way back to Moses. Um, I'm sure they hadn't started writing the psalms yet, but those descendants or ancestors of that tribe, um, they would have have continued to do uh, taking the lead in worship. 
Thank you for the question. We've got my friend Greg from Bulverde online too. Greg, it's always good to hear from you. You're on the air. Well, that's why I just wanted to just, uh, I know, I, I want to tell you how much I appreciate your taking the time to do your program here and you need your teaching at six that comes on. And, um, and I know you, I've heard you talk recently about, uh, you know, people call you Pastor Ron. And, you know, but I, I kind of do consider you one of my pastors. I, <laughs> I've learned so much from you. I look forward to four o'clock every day to hear what you're going to say, uh, particularly on Thursdays when, when Paul is in. And y'all, sometimes y'all just go back and forth, and uh, it's it's just. Uh, I just want you to know, there's a, I'm sure there's many of us like me that just love to hear what you're going to say on this given day, and mm-hmm. and I do consider you very much one of my pastors. I've, I've just learned so much from you and your teaching, and I look forward to four o'clock every day. <laughs> Thank you, Greg. It's an honor. All right, bro. Well, listen, I'm, I'm here listening. Okay, no question? Just want to say that? Yeah, I just want to say that, man. Just, oh, how nice. Just, that, you're, that you're appreciated. That's it. Thank you, buddy. God bless you, man. All right, you too. Take care. Appreciate it very, very much. See how nice God is to me. Thank you. Here's a question from Jeremy. He said, I don't understand how Jesus could die if he was God. Can God die? Jeremy, God can never die, nor did God ever die. Remember, Jesus had two natures. He was 100% God, but he was also 100% man in his incarnation. And from his incarnation forward, he will always be both. Now, that doesn't add up on the way we do math. 100% man, 100% God, that's 200%. No, he has a dual nature. And that was necessary in order for him to die for the sins of mankind, uh, for his sacrifice to be acceptable. Um, It had to be a man dying for the sins of mankind. Uh, Adam was our federal head. He blew it for everybody. Jesus was the second Adam. Um, He was the savior of all. Remember, Adam means man or mankind. Um, Jesus was the savior of all mankind. So uh, physically, um, he died. Um, That's why it's important. He was risen from the dead. He was risen from the dead in his humanity and, of course, his deity. But but when he died, it wasn't like God had a a moment where he was dead. Um, Jesus, when he cried out from the cross, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit, um, that was before he died. He never ceased being God. So that's really important. God cannot die, but the man Christ Jesus, and Paul's clear to point this out, there's one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. Um, The man died that we could live. So, Jeremy, that's how that worked, and, uh, well, we won't have a full understanding of that. His incarnation, uh, his revealing the person of Jesus Christ. And by the way, Jeremy, you might tune in on Friday. Uh, I'm going to be teaching just uh, three verses out of uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15, 16, and 17, that talks about this very issue, talks about who Jesus was and why that matters for us. So you can watch that at calvarysa.com at 7 o'clock on Friday. Of course, we uh, keep that on our website always. So um, that will help, I hope, understand uh, the incarnation and the importance, the value of it. Um, It's that important to us. Brett asks me, Pastor Ron, what ideas for church growth has your church pursued? Brett, I can say this with a straight face and with some godly pride. Uh, We have never, ever even talked about church growth. We've never, for a moment, tried to figure out how to make more people come to Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. We simply don't do it. Uh, my job is to be prepared to teach the Bible, and I do that for whomever the Lord brings. And we exhort people to share, and the body 
uh, dynamic is such that they go out and win people to Christ, or they go out and invite people to church. And, and you know, I think if you're faithful, uh, Brett, as a, as a, a pastor of a church, a teaching pastor of a church, uh, then God can trust you with people that the Spirit is always chasing. And I, I think the idea that we have to have some strategy or we've got to have a target audience. Uh, one of the great things, Brett, about Calvary Chapel of San Antonio is the diversity in our church. Uh, we have so many young people. Um, and then I've got my brothers and sisters, those of us who are getting old. And we got everybody in between. Um, not only that, we've got large numbers of people from every race, um, every economic background, uh, from from near destitute to very wealthy. Um, and, and we haven't done anything to get them. It's just that God can bless a seeking heart. And he always will reward a seeking heart. Um, and, and God is looking, I think, for churches that he can trust people that like that with. And so we've never spent one minute, nor have we spent one dime on church growth programs, marketing programs. We've never tried to be the cool church or the hip church. And I got a lot of cool people around me, but uh, it was never um, our idea to to be the the next cool thing uh, so that we could appeal to a whole bunch of young people. Uh, As I said, we've never targeted an audience at all. And I, I think one of the problems that we have, Brett, in our church culture is that uh, we do things the same way business does them. We we market, we research, we um, survey, uh, and the reality is um, we just open the doors. And, and God brings people that he cares about because he can trust us with them. He knows the word is going to be taught here. He knows the worship is going to be uh, Christ-centered. We're not trying to put on a show. He knows that the people at Calvary Chapel are going to welcome new people into the body. And, you know, Brett, we, we have, um, uh, we're not we're not a mega church by any stretch of imagination. I guess we got probably 1,200, 1,500 adults that call Calvary Chapel their church home. We can't fit anybody else in. Now, we are moving to a bigger facility um, over the next year. Uh, so that will change. Uh, but... Um, you know, we just minister to whoever shows up. We don't worry about who's not here, not for one minute. Uh, we just minister to the people who are here. And God has been very faithful. Again, my job is simply to show up prepared to teach. And I do what I do, and God does what he does, and he brings people. And what a joy it's been. And um, the idea, and, and I know a lot of pastors who have pursued church growth schemes and marketing plans. Um, and I think that's sad. I really think that's sad. So we've got diversity. We've got different age groups. Um, one of the things that I love the most, Brad, about what God has done with us is he brings a lot of people to us. Uh, they don't know it at the time, but they're going to get really, really sick and then they'll have a church family, a healthy body that will walk with them through this. And we've seen that happen over and over and over again. Thank you, Brett, for the question. Let's go to Tracy from San Antonio on line one. Tracy, thank you for holding. You're on the air. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. I Hi. have a, a quick quick question. Um, I've been doing a Bible study at home in uh, Samuel, First Samuel, and I have a I have a question. The in Samuel sixteen, uh, it David uh, or yeah, in chapter sixteen, it says that uh, Saul, you know, brought David, son of Jesse, um, you know, and he was well pleased with him, and he asked his father if he could stay, and you know, he played for him and all that, but then. Going in chapter 17, um, after David defeats Goliath, Saul then is like, he asks, you know, who are you? Who is your father? 
like he didn't know who he was. So I was wondering if you had a clarification on that or if I'm reading it incorrectly. No, you're not reading it incorrectly. I think some of the times um, uh, we we have a tendency to, to forget that Saul... Um, not only as king would have been very, very busy, but he would have had lots and lots of people and lots and lots of servants around him. So it's not that he forgot who David was. It's just, you know, he didn't recognize him or something. So it's nothing um, more than that. It's just it just who is this guy? And, you know, I can empathize with with Saul or people in that situation. Uh, because we'll have people come up, and, and I'm visually impaired, but um, I won't know who they are. Uh, I can't identify them. Uh, and they'll say, well, I've been to the church for five or six years. I said, well, then you need to get in my face. So I think that was all it is. Um, so, yeah, Samuel knew who he was. I mean, uh, Saul knew who he was. Um, and at this point, he's not yet trying to kill David. Um, but uh, he knows exactly um uh, who who David is, but at the same time, just with all of the people that would be around him, he wouldn't be able at all to to remember or to recognize. That's all it is, Tracy. Appreciate it very very much. Thank you. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Jean says, Pastor, when I pray, sometimes I feel like I don't really have anything to say. If I don't pray daily, I feel guilty. It's kind of a double-edged sword, Gene. You know what? Uh, I, I think we feel like we've got to always have something to say. And if you listen to people pray, Gene, and 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 maybe this, you, maybe you'll be the one person who takes me up on this. But but record your prayers and then listen back. And if you get too wordy, you'll be able to hear it. So if you don't have anything to say, let me suggest two things. First, pray for the gift of tongues. Because then you know you're praying in the will of God, and you know your prayer is initiated by the Spirit of God, so it's a prayer that's going to get answered. Now, it doesn't really matter. If you have enough faith, it doesn't really matter if you know what you're praying, but but pray for the gift of tongues. Your prayer will always be fruitful, and you can have that sort of confidence. Secondly, um, um, sometimes God just wants you to listen. So slow down, quiet down, and hear from the Lord. And in situations like this, Gene, the best way to do that is to have your Bible open on your lap and sort of meditate. Don't read quickly, but sort of meditate on the passage of Scripture that you're studying and say, Lord, do you have anything you want to say? Most of the time, the Lord is going to speak to you through his word. Now, it's not the only way, but it is the, I call it the 98% way. And and then you're going to have a, a foundation that will enable you to be discerning when God speaks to your heart. So don't pray because you feel guilty if you don't. Just talk to God. Just talk to God. I don't know if you have people in your life that are quiet. I really enjoy people that are quiet. They don't feel like they always have to say something. And and I think that's a, a, a solid relationship with Jesus Christ. When you don't feel like you have to just be with him. Just hang out with him and enjoy the time that you have with him. Um, but don't make prayer a chore. Make it something that is a delight. That's just talking with the Lord. You don't have to be on your knees. If you're young and you want to be on your knees, great. But uh, you can do it taking walk with the Lord. You can do it by just kind of being quiet before the Lord, um, but but don't feel guilty and don't talk too much. I think we all talk too much in our prayers with the Lord. Thank you, Gene. Appreciate the question. Let's go to Chris from New Brumfels on line one. Chris, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hey, thanks. Enjoy the show. Uh, thank my you. question is, I, I don't even know what category it'd fall into, but uh, I just always had a curiosity about the role of Judas Iscariot, uh, and obviously he betrayed Jesus. I, I'm just always curious if his role was in fulfillment of some prophecy, because the Jew, the, you know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Romans, they knew where Jesus was. He wasn't in hiding just before his betrayal. So I, just more of a curiosity question of if there was some prophecy that Judas as the betrayer was fulfilling. 
Um, no, uh, you know, the prophecy, of course, is that, that, that one close to you or a friend would betray you. Um, but one of the things I think that we need to um, to understand is that the Romans um, didn't know who Jesus was. I mean, obviously they knew about him, but but they wouldn't be able to, they wouldn't care to uh, identify him. They They wouldn't have firsthand knowledge of who he was. Now, obviously, Jesus dealt individually with some individual Romans, but um, the, the Romans who came to get him in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, uh, they wouldn't know who he was. You know, Isaiah says that that there's nothing about him that would point him out. There was nothing about his appearance, his physical appearance, that would point him out as anything special. And so the reality is he looked like all the other Jews. He was very average-looking. And um, um, so when when Judas said, I'll take you to where he is. Now, remember, the Garden of Gethsemane is a place that Jesus and his disciples had gone to um, sort of to be alone, to be away from um, the crowds, to be away from Rome um, often. So Judas knew he would be there. And, and the way I imagine this going on is, is uh, Judas saying to the Romans, I'll lead you to him. And they will say, how will I know? They would say, well, how will we know who he is? And he said, the one I kiss. And that's when Jesus said, Betray, and I love that King James, uh, betrayest thou the son of man with a kiss. So um, again, the Romans were well aware of Jesus. They were well aware of the, the turmoil that was developing in and around Jerusalem. But to identify him, the the common ordinary soldier or even centurion, um, they they wouldn't be able to know who he was. They wouldn't identify him quickly. Uh, they hated Jews. They didn't want anything to do with Jews. And as soon as they were off, I mean, that was the end of their interaction with with the Jews. So that is um, what was going on there. You know, one of the things that we know, Chris, about Judas is that that uh, he fulfilled prophecy in that uh, he was a betrayer and and they knew um, that he was going to do that and people say well he didn't have a choice then yeah he had a choice in fact Jesus gave him many many choices to to repent it's it's almost like Judas you don't need to do what you're about to do and uh, even even when Judas dipped into the 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 dip with the bread and uh, said, is it I? When Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me this very day. Uh, all the disciples were saying, is it I? Um, when Judas was in the bowl with Jesus, um, the way he was asking the question was, Lord, do you know what I've done? And that's when Jesus said, what you do, go and do quickly. And he was dismissed then from the remainder of the what we call the Last Supper. He could have repented. He had many chances, but he chose not to. People say, well, well, if that's his destiny, then why did he get, uh, why would he be spending eternity in hell? Well, we only know it was his destiny because God was telling the future as though it were the present. So Judas was always going to be the betrayer. But Judas was responsible because he had many opportunities. And I think at the end of his life, when he killed himself, um, um, he, he knows he's betrayed innocent blood. He declared it with his own lips. And when he betrayed innocent blood, um, that's when he went out and killed himself. Jesus said it would be better for him to never have been born. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it. Um, Here would be the last question for the day. Barbara says, my boss says she's a Christian but uses bad language and makes inappropriate comments regularly. Should I confront her? Yeah, I don't like the word confront because that's so harsh or rebuke is even harsher. But yeah, you need to pull her aside and lovingly say, the only reason I'm saying this to you is because as a Christian, as a fellow believer, if I were guilty of this, I'd want you to come and tell me. I'd want you to love me enough to tell me that what I was doing is wrong. And so, um, as a Christian, you know the language that you're using um, and the inappropriate comments that you make are are things that don't please the Lord. And and uh, Barbara, I would just simply tell her, look, I, 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 I love you, I pray for you, I'm going to keep praying for you, 
But the one thing that we need to do is honor Jesus Christ. We're always in front of unbelievers. And when a believer talks like you're talking or makes inappropriate comments like you are, believe me, the unbelievers are noticing. So love you, girl. I'm praying for you. But, but you know, you, you need to stop this. And she may get upset, but just say, well, you know, the Lord would want me to tell you this. And, and I told you in love. And then just leave it to the Lord. Um, he will use it. The Holy Spirit will take advantage of your courage. And he will begin working on her heart. And at some point, if she's a real believer, and you have no reason to doubt that she is, if she's a real believer then she's going to come to you and say, you know what, thank you for coming to me, having the courage to come to me and correct me. Just pray for her. That's what we can do. Thank you, Barbara. Appreciate the question. Hey, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, I know we're getting close to Thanksgiving, so we'll have some scheduling things uh, for next week for you. In the meantime, keep us in prayer. You know, we're moving to a, a, a much larger building, and we really desperately need your prayers. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I appreciate more than you can possibly know that you take the time to tune in to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Lord willing, I'll be back here tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.